Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. At last, we are talking about usury. Now, usury used to be a serious sin in the church, and in many cultures, it was condemned. In fact, to this day in Islam, usury is viewed as any type of interest charged on any loan. And that is the traditional view. Now, a lot of Protestant critics point to the church's teaching on usury as a clear place where the church has changed, went from viewing something as a mortal sin, and you can get kicked out of the church, you can break communion, bad things happen if you do such a thing, all the way to today where the Vatican Bank purchases bonds, which is a type of, of, of usury, right? Because now they're being paid interest. So what exactly happened with that? Of course, we don't think that the church actually changes its mind on anything concerning the deposit of faith, that it is the sole authority on matters of faith and morals. So what had to have happened instead is that the teaching, the, the moral truth stayed the same, and yet society changed. So what exactly changed? Well, we'll find out now. You might think that I'm going to conclude with, I don't know, something like, a little bit of interest is okay, but a lot is not okay. That's the point where it becomes us usurious. But no, that's not what I'm going to say at all. Um, for instance, I'm going to defend payday loans, which charge 35% interest. Yes, I think that's perfectly fine. No, I don't think that's usury. Um, I'm going to propose a more narrow definition, and I think it's going to draw pretty heavily from what we've traditionally uh, condemned, which, as the name usury implies, uh, relates to the charge for use. Um, Aquinas would say that usury is charging separately um, for the use of something and the ownership of something. So that's the sin. You're basically double charging because there are certain things which the use implies ownership. I believe he gives the example of a bottle of wine. Or if I say, hey, you can use my wine, well, it's consumed in use. And if it's consumed in use, then it implies the ownership to use it. It's not like if you rent a tractor, which you don't just return and say, hey, Thanks for renting me the tractor. It's all gone now. But you would with wine. More on that later. I want to jump right into an article. It's one of my, my favorites, actually. It doesn't entirely relate to usury. It covers all sorts of wonderful things. Um, it's an IMF working paper, and it's called The Chicago Plan Revisited. So this is actually about, um, it's about fractional versus full reserve lending, and it puts forward a, a the Chicago plan, which is a form of full reserve banking. At some point, I plan to do an episode comparing full reserve to fractional reserve to uh, free banking, but that is not this episode. Nevertheless, I, I want to read a little bit what they've written. That's a bit of a, I think this comes at the beginning of their paper, and I find it interesting that they took a more historical approach. So let me just read this, and they offer two forms of usury, and uh, we're going to pull from those. Without any further ado, the historical debate concerning the nature and control of money is the subject of Zarnell, uh, 2002, a masterful work that traces this debate back to ancient Mesopotamia, Greece, and Rome. Like Graeber in 2011, he shows that private issuance of money has repeatedly led to major societal problems throughout the recorded history due to the usury associated with private debts. Uh, 
Zerda uh, does not adopt the common but simplistic definition of usury as the charging of quote-unquote excess interest, but rather as taking something from nothing through the calculated misuse of a nation's money system for private gain. Historically, this has taken two forms. The first form of usury is the private appropriation of the convenience yield of a society's money. Don't worry, we'll explain this further. Private money has to be borrowed into existence at a positive interest rate, while the holders of that money, due to the non-pecuniary benefits of its liquidity, are content to receive no or very low interest. Therefore, while part of the interest difference between lending rates and rates on money is due to a lending risk premium, another large part is due to the benefits of the liquidity services of money. This difference is privately appropriated by the small group that owns the privilege to privately create money. This is a privilege that, due to its enormous benefits, is often originally acquired as a result of intense rent-seeking behavior. Um, if you're not familiar with rent-seeking behavior, that basically means that you are a, a, a private institution and you lobby, coerce, or sometime, somehow manipulate the government into giving you a special benefit, which allows you to extract large amounts of economic gain from the system in general, not because of any type of, um, of real value that you're creating, but instead just because of a government fiat granting you a special edge, a special leg up on your competitors. So, um, Zarda in twenty in uh, 2002 documents this with multiple historical episodes, and maybe you can uh, use this paper to link back to that paper, and you might get even more details. Um, we'll return to the issue of the interest difference between lending and deposit rates in calibrating our theoretical model, and they do, and it's glorious. The second form of usury is the ability of private creators of money to manipulate the money supply to their benefit by creating an abundance of credit and thus money at times of economic expansion and thus high good prices, followed by a contraction of credit and thus money at times of economic contraction and thus low goods prices. A typical example is the harvest cycle in ancient farming societies. But... Uh, Zelda and Damar of 1895, yeah, score for citing something super old, and the works cited therein contain numerous other historical examples where this mechanism was at work. It repeatedly led to a systematic to systematic borrower defaults, forfeiture of collateral, and therefore the concentration of wealth in the hands of the lender. For the macroeconomic consequences, it matters little whether this represents deliberate and malicious manipulation or whether it's an inherent feature of the system based on private money creation. We will return to this in our theoretical model. A discussion of the crisis brought on by excessive debt in ancient Mesopotamia is contained in Hudson and Van something and rather in 2002. It was this experience acquired over millennia that led to the prohibition of usury and or periodic debt forgiveness, or wiping the slate clean. In the sacred text of main Middle Eastern religions, the earliest known example of such debt crisis is in Greek history, where the 599 BC reforms of Solon, which were a response to a severe debt crisis of small farmers, brought on um, by the temples which had accumulated vast amounts of wealth over the centuries. 
but gold coins were nevertheless highly valued due to public fiat declaring them to be money. A more recent example is the collapse of the price of silver relative to gold following the widespread demonetization of silver that started in the 1870s. Raidmar and Ragoff of 2009 contain an even more extensive compilation of historical financial crises. However, like Zelanda and Del Mar, these authors do not focus on the role of private money creation. Um, the let's see so charging of interest on coinage by a wealthy oligarchy is extremely illuminating to realize that uh, solon's reforms at this very early time already contain many elements of what henry simmons of his uh, 1948 paper um, would represent a principal proponent of the chicago plan sometimes these papers are, are kind of strangely written but that's okay. We're reading them nonetheless. They're good stuff. I'll try to finish up this part for you. Then we'll unpack a little bit about what we read. So hang tight, listeners. Where on earth was I? Okay, two, 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 two. A principal component of the Chicago plan would later refer to as the financial good society. First, there are widespread debt cancellation and the restitution of lands that have been seized by creditors. Second, agricultural communities were monetized by setting official monetary price floors for them. Because the source of loan repayments for agricultural debtors was the output of these commodities, this turned debt finance into something closer to equity finance. Third, Solon provided much more plentiful government-issued debt-free coinage that reduced the need for private debts. And Solon's reforms were so successful that 150 years later, the early Roman Republic sent a delegation to Greece to study them. They became the foundation of the Roman monetary system from 454 BC um, until the time of the Punic Wars. Uh, it is also at this time that a link was established between these ancient understandings of money and more modern interpretations. This happens to the teachings of Aristotle that were to have a, such a crucial influence on early Western thought in, well, in ethics and many other things. They mention ethics. Aristotle clearly states the state institutional theory of money and rejects any commodity-based or trading concept of money by saying, quote, money exists not by nature, but by law. The dialogues of Plato contain similar views. This insight was reflected in many monetary systems of the time, which, contrary to a popular prejudice among modern monetary historians, were based on, listen to this part, they're actually based on state-backed fiat currencies rather than commodity monies. Examples include the extremely successful Spartan system, um, which, uh, okay, they do mention that, introduced by something and rather, Lugurgis, funny names back then, which was based on iron discs of low intrinsic value. The 390 to 350 BC Athenian system based on copper, and most importantly, the early Roman system from 700 all the way up to 150 BC, which was based on bronze tablets and later coins whose material value was far below the face value. Many historians have partly attributed the eventual collapse of the Roman Republic to the emergence of a plutocracy that accumulated immense private wealth <clears throat> at the expense of the general citizenry. 
Their ascendance was facilitated by the introduction of privately controlled silver money and later gold money at prices that far exceeded their earlier commodity value prices. During the emergency period of the Punic Wars, with the collapse of Rome, much of the ancient monetary knowledge and experience was lost in the West, but the teaching of Aristotle remained important and through their influence on the scholastics, including St. Thomas Aquinas. I love that this economic article not only references Aristotle, but Plato and Thomas Aquinas. That's simply fantastic. So, all right, a lot to unpack there. I'm going to add a few more things. They mention that in order to deal with the harvest cycle and the debt deflation, which causes collapses in the supply of money, et cetera, et cetera, they have cancellation of debt. Well, what is kind of referencing, and I think it does later, um, is the Hebrew system that you'll find in the Old Testament, where they had jubilee years where they canceled debts. This is why that was kind of a band-aid way of dealing with the private accumulation of lands in the hands of people who had the privileged position to issue currency. Now, the person was Solon. I thought it was Pericles, but anyways, Solon um, issued some some reforms in Greeks to deal with similar things. And you know what? I'm pretty sure Pericles also did some reforms. His were centered around crop prices, all to deal with the same general issue. So now let's get to the part that I wrote. This is from an email I was going back and forth um, with somebody who pointed out that usury is the consumed in use definition, which I will get to. Okay, and here's what I wrote. I know this is a slightly lazy episode because I'm reading a bunch of things, but this is one such day where I have things to do this morning. But I will not neglect you, the listener. You will get an episode, and I think this is a good one. I've been bouncing around the usury question in my mind for a while now. You are definitely correct about the consumed and use definition. Usury means use, and charging for the use of money, separate from the charge to own the money, is the sin identified by the church. Aquinas uses the example of wine, where if one sells the use of it, this implies the ownership since the use is in its consumption. Where it gets tricky is when we factor in inflation, risk, and opportunity cost. I would argue, and the modern church seems to agree, that each of these are real costs even if they exist as potential costs that are not always actualized. Therefore, the value of $100 at time one is not the same as in time two. The interest in this case would represent the repayment of the difference between the value of the money loaned and its present value. Since the value of the money at the two times are not equal, it is a matter of justice to see that each receives his due. This can mean repaying more than the original sum of the loan. I would further argue that since the resale value of the loan in secondary markets will reflect a market price that discounts it by those factors, which again, inflation, opportunity cost, risk, etc., the initial exchange of the borrower's loan for the lender's cash represents an upfront loss to the lender who is then made whole through the payment of interest. The second definition in the pre the first definition in the previous email states that there is something in addition 
to the original three factors motivating interest. Remember, those are risk, opportunity cost, and inflation. This convenience yield is deemed usury because it is not linked to the repayment of the difference between the money's time one and time two value. Instead, it harvests an unjust profit from a cash-constrained economy's efforts in creating real economic value. Historically, a case like this could come about when um, it could come about around harvest when individuals have a vast amount of a single perishable good to trade. Individual barter would be impossible. Retail sale would be extraordinarily difficult. What is needed is the liquidity for large-scale purchases and sales. This is where usury came in. They sent out the needed liquidity for the sole purpose of facilitating exchange in a cash-constrained economy. Interest in this case would represent a return to their privileged position as moneylenders and not to any economic value that they create. As Aquinas and many others point out, continued cycles such as the harvest cycle concentrate wealth in the hands of a few. The second definition offered is linked to the first in that it defines the root of usury as the privileged ability for a few to set the terms of economic exchange through the issuing of currency for profit. Instead of collecting wealth in the form of interest payments, this method of unjust gain relies on the fluctuation in the value of money itself to harvest gains. Whereas before, the extracting of usury was more transparent because the dollar amount fluctuated and the assets stayed the same, this time the opposite happens, and wealth is extracted by changing the asset value while keeping dollar prices constant. Back to the harvest cycle. In planting time, farmers needed loans to hire workers, buy supplies, and provide money to live off of until harvest. Land is commonly put up as collateral. This demand for loans increases the money supply as the loans are issued. When the harvest comes in, and as loans are paid off, the money supply falls as money extinguishes loans. There is, let me explain that. So when a bank loans money, new money comes into existence, and that goes out to whoever received the loan, and then the bank holds on its balance sheet a debt of an equal amount. But when that's paid back, that money extinguishes the debt on the balance sheet, and that money is gone. Okay, we continue. The result is that the last farmers to go to repay the loans will find it difficult or impossible to find money to do so since the money is now scarce in this deflationary environment. Even if their initial loan was at 0%, a deflationary event of 10% means that they suffer a 10% loss. Defaults concentrate land, which was the collateral, into the hands of the lender. And this is the reason why the Bible has jubilee years to return back the lands. And this is the same problem that, there you go, Pericles tried to solve with crop floor prices in ancient Athens. All this to say, usury in this scenario is by moving inflation and deflation rates 
to make loans appear cheap and become usurious at the point of repayment. Here's a modern example. I would say that the Federal Reserve's um, lending during the financial crisis at interest for the purpose of providing liquidity at a time of debt deflation is usury. Another example would be during the mortgage crisis when banks, having massively increased the money supply, begin foreclosing on homes as the money supply declines. This creates a cycle where increasing defaults further deflate the money supply and cause further defaults. All the while, the underlying asset of the house is collected by the bank. Now, this is not to say that the financial crisis was the bank's fault. I would say this lands almost entirely on the government, as per usual. All right. Now, I I go on a little bit. What I'm still seeking to figure out is whether signage revenue is a type of or relative of usury. Um, Signage revenue being the gains on the first use of new currency. In our current system, this benefit is about 15% paid to the government and 85% to the bank. I'll add that at the time that I wrote this, this was before a lot of the Dodd-Frank reforms kicked into high gear, and that's actually changed. So signage revenue is the uh, benefit of first use of currency. So remember, the banks actually create money. So when you get a loan, they loan money into existence. So all of the economy has prices which reflect um, being denominated by a given amount of money in the total system. But when new money comes into the system, then the market does not, quote-unquote, know that yet, and you're able to scoop up assets at a relatively low rate because the prices are adjusted for, say, $10 trillion in existence, but, hey, you just loaned another trillion, so you're actually getting everything at a 10% discount. Now, it used to be, as I said recently, what, 30 seconds ago, that banks got 85% of the benefit because they created 85% of the total money. But since they've been restricted in their lending by silly rules and things, that has uh, caused the Federal Reserve to take up that role. And by the way, you hear economists commonly saying, where did where was the period of lost inflation? Now, don't get me wrong. It's come back with a vengeance recently, but that's most of the answer to the question. Um, we see the government printed money like, like, it, like its hair was on fire, and yet we didn't have inflation for a very long time. Well, that's mostly because that new money creation by the Federal Reserve was actually offsetting the drop in money creation in the private sector because we basically muzzled the banks and we stopped their private money creation. I'll add that that's a really dumb idea because when the government creates new th- new money, it's not because of any economic signal. When banks do it in a well-functioning uh, fractional reserve lending system, instead they are anticipating growth in the market, anticipating new value coming into being. And their role as a financial institution is to match the future amount of money 
to the future amount of growth, and this is reflected in the way that they lend. So it's true that a developer who comes to a bank and wants to build a $10 million development hasn't created it yet, but value will be created upon its completion. So the debt is issued. The new currency comes into existence such that he can then organize the land, labor, and capital with the use of this money to bring this new thing into existence, at which point it becomes the asset which backs the loan. And now, since we have more value in the system, we needed that new money in the system. And look at that, because it matched the loan. That's exactly what we have. Okie dokie. There you go. You know everything about usury. All right, maybe you don't, but you know more about usury, hopefully. Let's just recap a few things. Interest isn't bad. Not at all. I identified three factors which need to be taken account in the order of justice. If you make a loan for $100 and you're in the U.S. right now with, what is it, 8.5% quote-unquote inflation. And by the way, that's inflation which takes out uh, the rise in energy cost and I think the rise in food. Top of my head, yeah, which are soaring. So the real inflation is, let's say, 12%. Well, your $100 today is not the same as $100 in one year at 12% inflation. So it's not an, in the order of justice to pay back the dollar amount of a loan if those dollars themselves have been devalued. What we ought to do is pay back value for value and dollars are just a way of trying to keep track of that. They don't have any real value in and of themselves, particularly when we've moved away from commodity-based money, which, by the way, was a good idea. I'm not a fan of commodity-based money for many reasons, which deserve covering in a different podcast. So, um, yes, I would say it's just, it's in the order of justice to have loans. If we didn't, if we stopped it in the current economic system, this would hurt people a lot. And as usual, when we screw with a well-functioning free market, which is properly regulated according to just principles, when we do that, the people who get hurt the most are the poor. Absolutely guarantee that. Now, why don't we have a harvest cycle anymore? Why don't we have like this underlying problem anymore? Well, well, that's pretty easy because we have a, a relatively even amount of economic output through the year. So there's not like a temporal sequence of massive lending followed by the massive repayment of loans. And th that's just because we've moved from an agrarian to an industrial to now, if anything, a post-industrial economy. And um, this problem has kind of gone away. So recall we have usury in the first way, which is the convenience yield of money. And that's really only possible in a cash-constrained economy. But with banks today, we don't really have cash-constrained um, economies. It, you can get cash whenever you want. So that type of usury is all but gone. Um, in that second system where we have the inflationary and deflationary rates being adjusted in order to make loans um, usurious, and again, not by design, but just by the virtue of the system, we don't have that because, as I said before, we now have an even rate of economic output. 
Also, I would add, we do have, up until recently, a generally expected 2 to 3% inflation rate. That's gone off the rails for many reasons, and I have an article that I wrote about inflation a year or so ago with some predictions, I believe. Um, maybe we can hit inflation as a different subject, but uh, suffice to say, if we have a regular rate of inflation, everybody expects it, we hit somewhere around that target, at least we average that target over the long term, then this isn't the scenario explained in your three definition number two. <clears throat> Excuse me. The last part I want to point out is to circle back to the basic idea of usury, as Thomas Aquinas would set it out, charging separately for purchasing something and using something. In the case of some coins used to facilitate a transaction, um, Aquinas has a point. In the case of our monetary system today, um, this justification is no longer applicable, and that's why the church doesn't condemn usury. Let me give you an example. If you go to your local bank and you ask for a $1,000 loan at 10% interest, the what they do is they give you $10,000. In a sense, they have now have they sold you the $10,000? In a way, you can say yes because you paid them in the form of a loan. But if that sounds fishy to you, well, it should, because a loan is not a payment. It is a potential payment. It is not an actual payment. The actual payment of a loan comes when you return that $10,000 to the lending institution, which you have not yet because you just got the loan. Now, you get your $10,000, Yes, they got a loan, but that's not real payment. That's only potential payment, not actual payment. So during the time that you have not paid for your $10,000 in cash, they charge you rent on that cash. Okay, is this usury? Absolutely not. As you can see, only one thing is being charged for, the rent on that money. And that's according to the three factors I named, which are in the order of justice. Compensation for inflation, the risk factor of default, and uh, the opportunity cost that they're giving up because they could have been using that in another means. All those things are perfectly fine to charge for. Now, when you give back the money, at that point, you have paid back your loan. So they gave you $10,000, and at the end of the loan, you have given them $10,000. In other words, you, quote-unquote, bought the money. Now, do we have usury at this point? Well, usury at this point would mean charging for both the renting of the thing, the use of the thing, and the ownership of the thing. But look, there's no overlap. The paying of interest, or the paying for use, the rent on the money, ceases when you pay the loan back. So there you go. There is no usury in that loan at all. Some might say, yeah, but come on, what if the interest rate is like really high and, and like exploits people and stuff? Um, nope, <laughs> still not usury. There's no overlap in this way. That is not the way it works. It is not 
any of the, the is not fitting any of the definitions that we've laid out so far. Maybe you could argue that in select uh, situations you could you could say it's a sin. I think you'd be hard pressed to explain why just charging a lot of interest is considered usury. Only if you had some monopoly uh, ability to supply those funds and you were in a cash-constrained local economy where there were no other options, et cetera, et cetera, could you call it the sin of usury? Otherwise, you'd be wrong. I don't think those scenarios commonly exist. Now, let I promise to cover the, the, the example of like a payday loan at 35% interest or whatever it is now. There's something to point out here. Rich people and poor people have very different internal rates of return. That basically is how much interest could I get? What uh, type of value could I generate on an annualized rate with a given amount of money? When you're poor, your internal rate of return can be very, very high. When you're rich, all of that, um, all of those uses of money have already been done. You've basically picked all the low-hanging fruit of um, economic choices you can make. Let me give you an example. Let's say you have a house and it has window air conditioners from the 80s. They're very inefficient. They're noisy. They cool your house, yes, but they use a phenomenal amount of electricity. And for your heating, you have baseboard electric heating. Your heating and cooling cost is very high. Your electricity bill is very high. So if you received, say, $1,200, one of the things you could do with that money is you could generate, say, a 50% rate of return because you would buy, say, a, a 2400 BTU Pioneer Mini Split and you would install it. And it would take over the heating and cooling responsibilities for a small house. You'd shut off everything else or just use it as a... Uh, a little redundant system to to fine-tune particular rooms to a given temperature. Well, it could save you four or five hundred dollars a year in energy costs, and there you go. You're you're making an incredible rate of return. If you could get a loan at a 30-35% interest rate, would that make sense to do? Well, yes, it would, because you would get that money up front, be able to purchase that thing, and begin saving money right away in an amount which is over and above the amount that you have to pay back in interest. Rich people, the more money you have, the lower marginal utility of a dollar, meaning the use of that dollar will yield less, because when you get money, you use it in the best, most profitable places first, and then the next best and next most profitable places next. And by the time you have a ton of money, well, you've already exploited all of your best options, which is fine. So should we expect that the interest rate for poorer people, um, which are higher, would, would make sense for poor people and not make sense for people who have a lot of money? Well, yes, of course we would, because it would reflect the internal rate of return, which is almost never 35% for people who are middle or upper class, but is very commonly that high for the poorer class. So to just arbitrarily say, no, I don't think that they should be able to get a 35% loan. 
No, that, that's just being paternalist. Maybe you could argue that you do, in fact, know better than them. You do, in fact, know how to spend their money better than them, even though you have no idea what their budget is, how much money they make, or where they need to spend it, or what their internal rate of return is. But let's just pretend like that was, that, that was your position, that you knew better. Well, then the subject has shifted from whether or not this loan is usury to should we be paternalists with regard to the poor and bar them from choosing things which they view to be um, one of their best financial options. I lean towards being less paternalistic in this sense because there are very many valid times to take a very high interest loan if you have a very high marginal um, marginal utility for your dollars. So go ahead and do that. If, however, you're taking that loan to buy, I don't know, Cheetos in appalling quantities to eat them off your belly, well, no, that's a bad choice, but I think they should be the ones to decide how to spend their money and not us. All right, um, I already covered why that's not usury by definition. There you go. I, I, I don't think that that is wrong. If you have any questions about usury, let me know. Send me an email at thegordiannot101 at gmail.com. I know this was a bit of a rambler, um, but I think that uh, hopefully you guys learned something. It drives me absolutely yumpy to hear Catholics talk about usury and having absolutely no idea what it is. Um, Interest is fine. Interest is just. Interest is normal. Extracting convenience yields from money because you have some type of of uh, exclusive monopoly on the controlling of currency from rent-seeking um, behavior. That, that That's wrong. Don't do that. Don't do rent-seeking. Don't be exploitive. Uh, don't seize all control of money creation and use it to harm people. That is the takeaway, ladies and gentlemen. Not sure where the ep- next episode is. I think it might be covering the um, my new argument for the finitude of the past. Listen to that one. It's a fun one. It should be short. I think it should be very clear. And although not all time arguments actually um, persuade me, I think I might be persuaded by this one. So give that one a listen too. As always, share this podcast if you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening.